fap, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you, that song is called Acid and Fapping. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco. Como México, no hay dos. Y como San Jalisco, tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. <clears throat> What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? A birria to die for? How about your favorite American dishes? They've got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Good morning, everybody. It's Labor and Love. You're tuned into Mutiny Radio. Saturday Every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., come your way. Labor news, labor opinion, labor history. Saw a video yesterday. Early life of
big as life and smiling with his eyes and says sure but they can never kill when on Thank you. 
Tennessee Halfway home We'll be there by morning Through the Mississippi darkness Rolling down to the sea But the towns And the people seem to just fade Into a bad dream And the steel rails Still ain't heard the news Conductor, sing your songs again, and passengers will please refrain. This train has got to disappear in railroad blue. This one's for my wife and children. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the night. I light up when you call my name, and you know I'm gonna treat you right. You give me fever when you kiss me, fever when you hold me tight. Fever in the morning, a fever all through the night. Everybody's Got the fever, that is something you all know. 
Fever isn't such a new thing. Fever started long ago. Romeo loved Juliet. Juliet, she felt the same. When he put his arms around her, he said, Julie, baby, you're my flame. Now give us fever. When we kiss it, fever with thy flaming youth. Fever, I'm a fire. Fever, yea, I burn forsooth. Captain Smith and Pocahontas had a very mad affair. When her daddy tried to kill him, she said, Daddy, oh, don't you dare give me fever. With his kisses, fever, when he holds me tight. Fever, I'm his missus. Daddy, won't you treat him right? Now you've listened to my story. Here's the point that I have made. Chicks were born to give you fever, be it Fahrenheit or centigrade, to give you fever. When you kiss them, fever, if you live, you learn. Fever, till you sizzle. What a lovely way to burn. What a There we go, and welcome. Welcome to Labor and Love. February 11th edition. And we started out with that set. Most recently, was, of course, Peggy Lee's version of Fever. So said, brother loved that. He played that song as if never never heard it before. Before that, Joe Hill sung by the redoubtable Joan Baez. Say, I watched a video biography of Bob Dylan, and of course, early early Bob Dylan up to about. Of course, Joan Baez figured prominently in his career up to that point. Baez was smart enough to understand that a gathering at Woodstock, quote unquote, hippie gathering, was really part of a working class movement. A lot of the people at Woodstock had taken a look at the kind of life that was being presented to them, adults, and uh, recoiled in alarm. And of course, the 
way to deal with things like that is to organize. Joe Hill said, and that's what Joan Baez said. So I want to want to start with our credos. Seems like we're getting Peggy Lee. Okay, goodbye, Peggy. Our credos on this show, and I won't read all of them, but uh, a few. Here's one from the Democratic Socialists of Los Angeles. So, they're just not that into politics. Well, your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. about the quote-unquote problem of immigrant people. Can I tell you a secret, says Jesse Memory. I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. We're going to hear later on in the show about Indian workers brought to the U.S. to clean up the messes caused by the huge storms and hurricanes. This whole wall, deport the illegals BS, is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason why they're all poor is due to vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with the wage stagnation. Look around. <laughs> you can tell how a society works by the way its resources and its wealth are distributed. Who's got the money? The rich got the money. Vast army of working people don't have the money. They're broke. They're living from paycheck to paycheck. So we're involved in a situation, in a system that takes money from the people who work and create wealth and gives that money to the rich, the owning class. That's how it happens. Please use your brains, Jesse continued. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. 
you're poor and broke because you're not getting paid enough. <laughs> That's pretty simple. A good one. Okay, how about this one? When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe, more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. And here's Utah Phillips on labor history. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have labor laws, child labor laws. Those were not benevolent Gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories. Damn it. So those are some of our... Um, and let's see what we've got on for today. <laughs> got a beautiful article from a D.C. Uh, Starbucks worker talking about her work or his work. It's not clear, I think. Confessions of a Slave Wage Starbuck We're going to see some of Fred Glass's History of the California Labor Movement, Part 3. Super Bowls tomorrow. Have we thought about the subtle, not so subtle, influences on, of, on fans who go to watch the Super Bowl? Player almost died a couple of weeks ago, and we're like it never happened. Dave Zirin talks about that behind the shield. Um, Richard Wright, great writer. who wrote in 1941 that this coming World War II was not his <clears throat> Okay, let's take a look at the NFL. NFL's racism runs deep. The uh, real news network. Yeah, outlet based in Baltimore. 
Welcome to Real News. I'm Mark Steiner. Great to have you with us. Well, as we all know, the Super Bowl is upon us. And okay, my Ravens didn't make it, but some of us prepare for this annual event, and there's much more to reflect on than just whether Kansas City or San Francisco walks away with a trophy. Now, not to take away from your chips and salsa, but the NFL is a bastion of racism. Everything from the team whose name is a racist slur, the reality is that even though 70% of all the players are black, only three of them are head coaches, and only one black person is a GM. They attack Kaepernick or any other player who stands up against racism and for building a new equitable society. And then, of course, many of the owners are billionaires, of course, and they back who? Donald Trump. And treat the players as so much meat to profit from. Who better to tackle this than Edge of Sports host and sports editor for the nation, whose latest book is Bad Sports, How Owners Are Ruining Games We Love, and who wrote the nation article, Why Are There So Few Black Coaches in the NFL? It's the racism, stupid. And our generation's Red Barber is here with us. Welcome, Dave. Good to have you back. It's great to be here, Mark. So let's talk about this thing. I mean, you don't think about this often in this sense. I mean, um, the kind of racism inside that pervades this, who the owners are, the relationship to the players. And why should that matter to us who want to love to watch the game? Well, it only matters if we want to watch as conscious sports fans. Uh, it only matters if we want to see the game that's taking place beyond the game. It only matters if we want to understand what the NFL truly is behind its carefully manicured shield. Uh, it only matters if we know that there are NFL players who say that NFL stands for not for long or N-word for lease. Mm. That's what they say because, mm. and I've had players say that to me, because they believe that they are just pieces of equipment. The average NFL career is only three and a half years. You know, Michael Bennett, who plays for the Dallas Cowboys, he once said to me, you know, people think that the NFL uh, is integrated, but it's not integrated. It's actually segregated. It's segregated between those who play and those who get to sit in the front offices and those who get to sit in the owner's box. And that kind of segregation is something we should be well aware of because if the NFL is going to be this cultural force in our society, which it surely is, then we should be able to make demands on it to be more equitable and frankly, to be less authoritarian. So how do you, I mean, how do we even get there when you, when, when for years and years and years, people have been trying to get the Washington team to change its name. The owner refuses to do that, will not even consider it. Uh, when you have what happened to Kaepernick, all the things that have gone on inside the NFL. I mean, the only, there's only one team that is, that is not owned by a billionaire when that would be Green Bay. Um, mm -hmm. so how do you change that? I mean, what, what is, is this, is this, a, this is like a private domain, their own plantations. Right. How do you change it? Well, I think the only way you can talk about changing it is through, first of all, the NFL Players Association and the union. Uh, their contract comes up this next year, uh, and this is a big deal. We should follow these contract negotiations very closely because they should contain demands about a pipeline towards coaching, a pipeline towards working in the front office for their players. Um, it should contain uh, some sort of stipulation in the collective bargaining agreement about making sure that players have proper health care upon retirement so they aren't just seen as pieces of meat by ownership. And I think that's the only way you're going to make a dent in this. Now, fans could make demands as well uh, for certainly hiring better coaches, which means coaches of color because they get shut out of the hiring process, despite what they call the Rooney rule in the NFL right. that, um, that forces uh, ownership. And it says so much that they have to be forced to do this to actually sit across the table with candidates of color. So this is where we are. We need to look to the union, 
Fans need to be more conscious about it, and we need to be willing to discuss this in uncomfortable spaces like sports radio, for example. And we need to discuss it on social media and make sure that this discussion isn't whitewashed out of the conversation, particularly now leading up to the Super Bowl. I mean, and you, when you think about this, you know, the, the, it's only been in the last several years that you've seen a lot of black quarterbacks. That was the white position mm -hmm. in football, right? And that's begun. Absolutely. That, it's slowly beginning to change. Um, and so it's the same thing. So what you're saying is alluding to the fact that I think that some of these white owners of NFL teams really don't think much of black intelligence or the intelligence of right. people of color. And right. You have to go with what they're showing us in practice. I mean, when there's only one front office leader uh, who is African-American, and that's in Miami, and not coincidentally, Miami also has a black coach in Brian Flores. I mean, that, that should tell us something about how this operates and how the, the systems operate and how institutionally racist the NFL is. Because interesting, even think about the way we're talking about this, Mark. We're talking about this in terms of 70% of the players are black mm -hmm. and only 3% of the coaches are black. We're, we're not even speaking about the idea, what if you're not a player and you're just an incredibly intelligent black person who knows a lot about football? I mean, you see that among white coaches all the time, particularly white coaches who are part of the family tree of certain players. I mean, I mean, of certain coaches. I mean, the coach of the San Francisco 49ers who are playing in the Super Bowl is Kyle Shanahan, the son of Mike Shanahan, longtime coach of the Denver Broncos. Now, Mike right. neither Mike Shanahan nor Kyle Shanahan played in the National Football League, but there you have the nepotism pipeline, which exists on a host of fronts and on a host of teams throughout the National Football League. So if you're a black player, and you can't make it to the head coaching position, what the heck are your chances if you're just a, a black person who is deeply intelligent about coaching and NFL strategy? You basically have no chance to make it to the higher echelons of the sport. And that's, that's really problematic on the grand scale of things because we're watching this sport, we're indulging in this sport, we're supporting this sport monetarily, and yet this is the kind of cultural excrement that the sport uh, puts back into our face. So let's talk for a moment about Colin Kaepernick, who is somebody who really changed the nature of the discussion of football, and I think in some ways brought some of these contradictions to the fore just because of who he is and what's happened. Um, and uh, and, and in, 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 in what this might mean for the future of football, because, I mean, he may never get, never get a chance again to play, um, but what he did was to stand up to something uh, and, and, and change even the dialogue inside. So talk a bit about what, what that means. Well, let's make no mistake about it. Colin Kaepernick changed the power relationship between NFL players and owners. He showed that through social media and through support of the people themselves, that players could be more than just pieces of meat, more than just extensions of equipment. And he inspired a whole layer of players as well to be misbehave to, to misbehave basically mm -hmm. i mean that's how ownership sees it to not act the way they're supposed to act to not act like good little soldiers but instead say wait a minute you know police violence is an issue that's important in my community i'm going to take a knee in front of all the cameras and in front of all the world before the national anthem before you knew it espn was having to have a column every week about which players were taking a knee during the anthem and it had to be covered and discussed and so then all of a sudden the nfl and commissioner roger goodell aren't controlling the messaging of their multi multi-billion dollar operation 
and that made Colin Kaepernick dangerous, and that's why he can't find a job, even though he's clearly one of the 15 best quarterbacks in the world. And we have to uh, recognize and understand uh, that Colin Kaepernick is somebody who the NFL ownership are trying to turn into a ghost story. They're trying to turn him into somebody who they can use to frighten players to stay in their place, uh, to be able to say, you don't want to end up uh, colluded against. You don't want to end up white-balled, as Atan Thomas puts it, mm-hmm. like Colin Kaepernick. And yet, I think the opposite has taken place. I think Colin Kaepernick has become an animating spirit and somebody who's still inspiring players, not just at the NFL level, but at all levels. Uh, just this past year, you had uh, uh, basketball players at the University of Mississippi take a knee during the national anthem because some Klansman types uh, were having a demonstration on their campus and were being allowed to do so. I mean, that's at, that's at Mississippi, for goodness sakes. And it just goes to show you that you know, you can't uh, get rid of Colin Kaepernick. You can't erase Colin Kaepernick. And I think that's something that drives the NFL batty. I mean, just this past uh, couple weekends back during the NFL championship game, uh, they, there was a commercial that the NFL showed about the works they were trying to do in terms of working with local law enforcement right, on the that. issue yes, of yes. police violence. And who's conspicuously missing from these ads is Colin Kaepernick. And it, it is like National Archives level erasure in terms of what they're trying to do to him. But they, they can't do it completely. They just can't. Well, I mean, the, 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 the social conditioning and, and, the, and the economic uh, issues that face this country, I mean, they play themselves out on the field in, our, in, in sports all the time. Um, and so, out of curiosity, are you going to watch the game this weekend? Well, it's a question. I mean, <laughs> when you cover... If, if, I, if, if, if I had a job like, like my, my, my sister does, very proud of my sister, she's a teacher in the public school system. If I had a job like her, I would be one of the boycotters. I'd be somebody who didn't watch um, in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. Uh, as somebody who covers this stuff for a living, I feel like I need to watch to see the kind of messaging that they're trying to put across. But when it comes to watching the NFL as a consumer, I mean, those days for me are done. Hmm. No matter how tempting Lamar Jackson is and no matter how many um, Lamar Jackson posters my son chooses to put on his wall, uh, it's very difficult for me to to approach the NFL as a consumer because of the way ownership uh, behaves themselves. So let's just close with this. I mean, what you just raised here when I asked that question, it was a little tongue-in-cheek, but the answer was incredible. So, So for people who love the game, of any any game, but let's say this game in particular, we're talking about football right now, I have to weigh that, you know, weigh yeah. the idea that the, the, the enjoyment of watching uh, watching a great football game and watching incredible folks play this game with understanding what's going on behind the game and how you live with those contradictions. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah, they've about. turned it into a moral choice. Right. And you know whose fault that is? That's the fault of Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, and all of the cowardly NFL owners who hide behind the shield. It's their fault. They've turned the league into something this polarizing. Donald Trump has certainly helped. But the idea that we shouldn't just appreciate the players and the humanity of the players is absolutely absurd. And that's something that the NFL and the way they treat players has done. So I think all NFL fans should take a close look at how this collective bargaining agreement and how it's going. They should weigh in on social media on behalf of the players. And they should push for players to be able to have more rights and more power and I think if they do that, you know, interestingly, I think that'll bring more people back to the game because nobody wants to see something that's just rank exploitation. I mean, if it's something where you feel like the players actually have equity, 
then it becomes a different moral question. Well, we have to fight against racism and for economic and racial justice no matter where we find it, whether it's the sports was anyplace else. And Dave Zimmerman, you show us the way in many ways. Thank you so much for your work and thanks for joining us again today. Thank you so much, Mark. Always my pleasure. And I'm Mark Steiner here for the Real News Network. Thank you all for joining us. Let us know what you think. We'll write those letters to the NFL. Take care. Okay, that interview with Dave Zirin um, took place about years ago. Question. A similar question. NFL is <coughs> there's a little book about Kurt Flood. This week I read up some uh, uh, Richard Wright, African-American writer. I come up and say, well, man, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Still, in the sense of him describing and analyzing the whole existence of black people as an oppressed nation, uh, that's priceless. I was scared. Scared. All my life I heard of black men being killed because of white girls. There I was. Richard Wright proved that a black writer could write considerably better than most of the white writers of his day. And after Native Son, the, the condescending attitude toward black writers was over. He said, nothing comes before my art. The, for him, his art was sacred. He didn't care about anything else but that. What he had to do was the most important thing.
can't imagine what it had to be like to live under conditions of not only repression, tremendous uh, racist uh, discrimination, but no outlet for talking about it, for seeing a way of changing. In the early 1940s, I would say that most white Americans never thought about blacks. They never thought about blacks except maybe as maids and quarters. And there was no consciousness of all of what was going on in the country. They had been objects. They had been photographs. They had been images. They had been silly, uh, simply voiceless. White people only knew black people. Um, in certain kinds of movies and films. It was black musicals, it was shuffle along, the comic routines, it was the wonderful jazz music, of course. I mean, what people talk about in terms of the Harlem Renaissance, the jazz age. All of that was part of the, or created an imagery of black people that Wright had to transform. The problem that, that Wright understood is that black men have to deal with tremendous problems every day of their lives and yet nobody understands that. And if you don't understand those problems, you can't have any sympathy. So what he wants us to do is to shock us into recognition. Bigger gets a job driving for the Daltons, a wealthy white family. That night, he drives their daughter, Mary, to a rendezvous with her communist boyfriend, Jan. Jan and Mary drink all evening. Later, Bigger has to carry Mary, thoroughly drunk, to her bedroom. When her blind mother interrupts, Bigger tries to quiet Mary. Mary, honey. Mary. Are you all right? Mary, dear. You aren't asleep, are you? I hear you moving about. Everything smells of alcohol. Again. Here is a young man who, intimidated by the voice of a white woman, representing the power of white lives, a blind woman, he's afraid that this woman will discover him in the room. And he is so terribly afraid of this white woman and what she represents. He puts that pillow on Mary's head so she can't make a sound. So that murder is very much accidental. And it's important in the reading and the interpretation of the novel for us to understand that it's accidental in order for us to then understand the depth of that fear. Wright made Bigger's fear the driving force throughout the remainder of Native Son, a fear that caused Bigger to do terrible things. It was this emotion, Wright felt, that corrupted race relations in America. It was a, a terror of what might happen if you stepped out of line. Remember, he was a product of the South. Even in its transformed state in Chicago, it was still the South. So you were always having to be on your toes about what you did because the least little thing you did might cost you your life.
central to his thinking and living in the South. It was built into him from the very beginning. Families teach children fear because they want them to survive. For black families in Mississippi, especially sharecropping families, fear was the main response to a code of behavior whites imposed called Jim Crow. It's very important to understand what Jim Crow meant to a child, to Richard Wright in the early part of this century. He describes part of it to us and for us. That is, when whites, because they're white, have total power over your life and over your death as well, that neither means much to them. Nathaniel and Ella Wright, Richard's parents, spent their lives under Jim Crow. His father was an illiterate sharecropper. Nathaniel met Ella at a country social in this one-room church and school near Natchez, Mississippi, where she taught part-time. The children of rural black families attended school only from November through February, so in March, cotton could be replanted. Ella and Nathaniel lived in a cabin near the Mississippi River. He inherited his sensitivity and sensibility from his mother, not from his father. He looked like his father. He probably sounded like him, but he was his mother's child. Richard, the first of two sons, was born on a plantation in 1908. And those plantations were all over Mississippi. This particular plantation was 25 miles north of Natchez. And I think it was Rutgers. But the three plantations there together were the earliest uh, habitation for all of his family, his father's people. Travelers Rest, the Huggets, and Ruckers. The land on Travelers Rest was where his father and his grandfather farmed as slaves. Then, in 1914, when Richard was six, an event a world away forced many sharecroppers across the South off the plantations. With the start of World War I, the European market for American cotton collapsed, triggering a great migration of rural blacks to large cities. Why not have it all? That was the life and times of Richard Wright. Let me see if we can get the end of that. <clears throat> Guess not. Okay, people are going to say, what are you doing? It's supposed to be a labor show. The whole Jim Crow structure was 
invented and sustained to get labor out of people. He said the only school that young black kids had was between November and March because the cotton had to be planted. It had to be harvested in the fall. So forget school. Workers, forget school. They don't need school. White kids may need it, not the black. We can say the same thing about pro football. The players have little voice in what goes on. They're the workers. People say when they hear of protests, Shut up and play football. That's, that was uh, Mr. Trump's response. No, that's their labor. Going to have something to do with it? I don't know. Well, let's look and see. Um, to radio labor and here it is so far no radio labor Black and proud, we sing it loud. Gotta keep on trucking, gotta keep on moving, cause there ain't no stopping us now. Workers singing, we are family, and we ain't too proud to beg for peace and positivity with a groove to make you shake a leg. See, motivation plus liberation to a march ended segregation. There's no nuclear proliferation up in here, up in here, so get your rear in gear. Yeah, here we come, here we come, here we come now, here we come, here we come, come on. Here we come, 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 Uh, labor history in two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1913. That was the day that Ida Bremen was killed while she stood up for the rights of working people in Rochester, New York. Ida was born in Russia to a Jewish family. She came to the United States fleeing persecution in her homeland. Her family came to Rochester because it was a thriving center of the U.S. garment industry. Seeking a better life, Ida's father joined the Brotherhood of Tailors. 
In January, garment workers in New York City had gone out on strike. Factory owners in the Big Apple decided to send work to Rochester in an effort to avoid the striking workers. Unions were forbidden in the Rochester garment industry. Union leaders from New York City came to Rochester asking them to stand up against the factory owners. The workers in Rochester agreed to support the strike, but they wanted union recognition, the eight-hour day, and a pay raise. Ida and her father were among the first to walk off the job. Ida joined picketers in front of a sweatshop on Clifford Street. The picketers were there to protest the shop's workers who were not taking part in the strike. The shop owner, Valentine Sauter, fired a rifle into the crowd of picketers. Ida was struck by the boss's bullet and killed. She was only 18 years old. That night, she was supposed to have her engagement party. The community was outraged. 5,000 people attended her funeral. Mass rallies were held across the area. While no one was ever held accountable for her death, Ida's murder became a rallying cry for the striking workers. They continued to fight until April, when they won the right to join a union. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1919. That day began the week-long general strike in Seattle, Washington. As World War I drew to a close, many workers in the city were frustrated by two years without pay increases due to the war. 35,000 workers in the shipyards walked off the job. Workers from most of the 110 union locals across the city voted to support the general strike. At 10 a.m. on February 6th, the citywide strike began. As many as 65,000 workers, or a fifth of the entire workforce of the city, walked off the job. They were met by a combined force of the police and the military. It has been nearly a century since the Seattle general strike. This unprecedented stand by the city's workers has been remembered and commemorated in many ways. Perhaps the most innovative memorial came in the form of a rock opera. In 1985, Rob Rosenthal set the story of the strike to music. He based the lyrics on research and interviews he did as a graduate student at UC Santa Barbara over the course of 10 years. A band named The Fuse formed to record the 21-song album. The final project was a blend of rock, blues, and folk. The music tells the story of a fictional man who comes to Seattle looking for work in the shipyards during World War I, joining the labor movement and the strike. What labor history event would you like to hear set to music? And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2008. That evening at 7.15 p.m., an explosion rocked the city of Wentworth just outside Savannah, Georgia. An explosion had gone off at Imperial Sugar. Highly combustible sugar dust had ignited. Eight people died at the scene, while later, six more workers succumbed to their injuries at a regional burn center. The explosion left dozens more injured. The sugar refinery and packaging plant had operated since 1970. It was one of the largest refineries in the United States. 
The company had been warned for decades about the dangers of sugar dust. Yet the dust collection system was undersized and in disrepair. The building materials at the plant were outdated and added fuel to the fire. Worse, as many as 40 workers were not trained on how to evacuate in an emergency. Once the fire started, it burned quickly. The inferno reached temperatures of 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The Chemical Safety Board investigated the accident. Their conclusion was that it was entirely preventable and the deaths and injuries should not have happened. OSHA introduced a bill to regulate the dangers of combustible dust. But the Combustible Dust Explosion and Fire Prevention Act of 2008 did not make it through Congress. The company settled a series of civil lawsuits and paid a $6 million fine for the safety violations at Wentworth and another one of its plants. But they admitted no wrongdoing in the disaster. By November 2009, Imperial had rebuilt at the site. The disaster at Imperial was not an isolated incident. In the three decades leading up to that accident, 300 dust explosions killed more than 120 workers at sugar plants, food processing plants, and grain silos across the nation. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1974. That was the day that a three-man American astronaut crew returned to Earth from an 84-day mission at the Skylab. They were the first crew to spend so long in low Earth orbit up until that time. The crew also returned with a different kind of first. They had launched the first space strike in history. The all-rookie crew was scheduled for an arduous work schedule at the space station. When one member fell ill, they began to fall behind schedule on their long list of tasks. From the ground, NASA Mission Control urged them to catch up by working through meals and scheduled rest times. Tensions mounted as the three men were monitored at every moment. The commander of the trip tried to explain the crew's exhaustion saying, on the ground, I don't think we would be expected to work 16 hours a day for 85 days. And so I really don't see why we should even try to do it up here. Six weeks into the trip, the Skylab 4 crew had had enough. They turned off the communication radio connecting them to Earth. They took an unscheduled day off. When the communication link came back on, the commander issued the group's demands, saying, We need more time to rest. We need a schedule that's not so packed. We don't want to exercise after a meal. We need to get things under control. NASA agreed to stop pushing so hard. The first space strike was over, and the mission went forward on better terms. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1854. That was the day that novelist George Lepard died in Philadelphia. Lepard was friends with Edgar Allan Poe. He is most well-known for his novel about Philadelphia, titled Quaker City. The book is considered to be one of the first American muckraking novels. Muckrakers write to uncover misconduct or muck in public life. The book casts the city elites in an unflattering light. 
and explored the crooked underbelly of the city. The elites did not much care for the book, but the working class made it the best-selling novel in the country. In 1849, Lepard helped found the Brotherhood of the Union, which later became known as the Brotherhood of America. It was a secret benevolent society, a kind of Freemasons for the working man. The Brotherhood issued badges and medals. They borrowed from names and symbols of the American Revolution. They promoted a shorter workday, education, and election reform. By 1850, the Brotherhood had expanded to 19 states. Lepard was elected Supreme Washington, the highest title for the leadership position of the group. He died a few years later, succumbing to tuberculosis at the age of just 31. But the Brotherhood continued long after his death into the late 20th century. In a book about New York, Lepard once wrote, Enormous wealth is only enormous crime. Yes, we may phrase it as we will, the immense concentration of wealth in the hands of any one man or in the hands of any corporate power is an evil wrought with more danger to the happiness and liberty of the nation than all the crowned tyrants of the world. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1974. That was the day. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1903. That was the day that workers in Oxnard, California, took a united stand and showed the power of solidarity. Oxnard was a California boom town. The American Beet Sugar Company, owned by the Oxnard brothers, drew hundreds of workers to the area. These new arrivals included Mexican and Chinese agricultural workers who faced hostility from local white residents. The managers at Oxnard exploited this interracial tension. They intentionally exacerbated conflicts between the groups of workers in an effort to keep wages low. This animosity heightened even further when the federal government passed the Chinese Exclusion Act severely restricting Chinese immigration to the United States. As the number of Chinese workers at the factory fell, the company recruited Japanese workers to take their place. They wanted to continue to divide and exploit their workforce. They required their employees to shop at a company store. They also paid their recruits less than was originally promised. But the company had miscalculated. The workers were fed up with these tactics. 500 Japanese workers and 200 Mexican workers walked off the job. Soon the number of striking workers had grown to more than 1,000. One Mexican worker was killed during the work action and four other strikers were injured. But the workers stood strong together. The company eventually caved to the demands of the workers. The victorious workers then applied for union affiliation with the American Federation of Labor. But the AFL refused to admit the new local because it included Japanese workers. It would take a few more decades before the lesson of solidarity taught in Oxnard, California would begin to be embraced by the U.S. labor movement. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Okay, well, there's your weekly labor history fix. Several cases of worker solidarity. <clears throat> workers actually stood together. I think we all understand that. Stay together. 
united support one another's project. That's so many more of us. Awesome. Want to play radio labor? But I'm just not getting any cooperation. Okay, that was from uh, Fruit of Labor. Just learn about solidarity. Great Paul Robeson. Oh, 
estaciones pasan y los años arrebasan memorias lindas de su existencia piscando y sembrando once árboles y yo contemplamos hoy la vida que Chema vivió
Before Quetzal, we had Paul Robeson singing in Russian, song of the Volga Boatman. Somehow this was a song that I learned when I was in elementary school. But it makes me think that some of those teachers I had were not such deadheads anyway. And before that, we had Fruit of Labor, collective from North Carolina. I'm going to play something now from the program Democracy Now. And it talks about workers who are come who are brought here from India to help clean up after big floods and hurricanes. Hire them to clean up after hurricanes, floods. There we go. From New York, this is Democracy Now! I know that a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security Medicare. Well, let me say this. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. In Florida, President Biden blasts Republican Senator Rick Scott for proposing to put Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block. We'll speak to legendary consumer advocate Ralph Nader about efforts to privatize Medicare and Social Security, as well as fighting corporate crime, the launching of his newspaper, The Capitol Hill Citizen, and more. Then The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. over and over again. Great escape. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to the issue of labor coming to this country uh, and being trapped here, 
as the rate of climate-fueled disasters intensifies, we spend the rest of the hour looking at the immigrant workers lured into forced labor by corporations who hire them to clean up after hurricanes, floods, blizzards and wildfires. This is what longtime labor organizer Saket Sony writes about in his new book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. Saket Sony is the director of Resilience Force. He first joined us in 2007, when the story was still unfolding, with a man named Sabulal, one of hundreds of guest workers from India protesting conditions at a shipyard they were hired to clean up in Pascagoula, Mississippi, after Hurricane Katrina by the company Signal International. When I stepped into my man camp, which is provided in the yard of uh, Signal International, I just surprised that, because uh, uh, in my 20 years of experience, I didn't uh, meet such a situation because um, there are 24 people in a room. Like, uh, I think it's a pig in a cage. The men were fired when they complained about their living and working conditions, but they didn't stop there. Socket Sony recently joined us from New Orleans to share more about the great escape he documents in his new book. I asked him to take us back to 2006, when he received a mysterious call from an inside a heavily guarded work camp in Pascagoula, Mississippi, where hundreds of welders and pipefitters had been recruited from India to come to the Gulf Coast to repair oil rigs after Hurricane Katrina. Thanks, Amy. Um, that's right. It started with a mysterious midnight phone call after Hurricane Katrina. I was a labor organizer running a scrappy, small workers' rights nonprofit. And um, this was a time when the post-Katrina flooding had turned the U.S. Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. I was protecting the workers who were doing the cleanup and the rebuilding. Most of these were black and brown workers who would stand in the morning under a giant 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee when contractors would take, pick them up and take them out to do the rebuilding of the distant, dark corners of the Gulf Coast. That's what I was doing. Um, those are the workers I was talking to when I got the mysterious phone call. Um, the person who called me was, unlike most of the workers who called, he wasn't from Mississippi or Louisiana. He wasn't either white, black or Latino. He was an Indian man flown in from India, calling from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I thought, what was an Indian man doing coming here to clean up uh, after Hurricane Katrina, all the way from North India? Uh, I discovered that he was one of 500 workers who had been recruited to come to Mississippi and Texas to work for a large oil rig builder to clean up, rebuild shipyards and oil rigs. Um, and when he arrived in the Gulf Coast, he found himself in atrocious conditions. These men had been promised green cards and good jobs in India, and had been um, told that they would get those if they paid $20,000 apiece. $20,000. I mean, that is generations of savings. Workers sold ancestral land. Um, they took on um, extraordinary loans from violent loan sharks to come. But when they arrived, they found themselves not on green cards, but on temporary work visas in labor camps in company property. And talk about the security uh, on the company property. Not exactly security for them, but for the company signal that still exists, right? Well, um, the company, Signal International, decided to build a labor camp on company property. Um, 
this was a series of trailers that were uh, placed on a toxic waste dump. Um, the workers were living there, 24 people to a trailer. Um, the labor camp, which the company itself called a man camp facility, was surrounded by a barbed wire fence. Workers were working uh, round the clock in 12-hour shifts um, to build these um, oil rigs for the company. Uh, this was a private equity-owned rising behemoth in the Gulf Coast, uh, Signal International. And they were getting these workers, the most skilled workers in the world, at a fraction of the cost of U.S. workers. Um, there were security guards. The men were only allowed out of the labor camp, chaperoned by American security guards. And the places they were allowed to go to were Walmarts, uh, where they would buy uh, provisions to come back. That's how the workers lived. Those were the living conditions. What about the food? The food was atrocious, atrocious. Um, the workers were given, most mornings, uh, stale bread and frozen rice. There were no microwaves, Amy, on the work site, so the way the men would eat the frozen rice would be to suck on it. The work would—the men would suck on frozen ricicles um, in order to gain the sustenance um, uh, to do their really difficult and dangerous work. In fact, the whole great escape—the the, uh, escape out of a heist film that's at the center of the book uh, was actually imagined and engineered over a secret of uh, over a, a series of clandestine meetings that featured food. I started partnering with a man deep inside the labor camp, uh, a worker named Rajan, someone who is um, he was a labor organizer's dream. He was extraordinary. He taught me about the pressures on the men. He taught me about the conditions at the labor camp. But he also taught me to cook. And over a series of months, I would smuggle into him spices and ingredients um, to create Indian food. He commandeered the kitchen in the labor camp, and through a series of magical meals, um, he brought the men back to life from their catatonic state. And he convinced them, then, uh, to undertake the great escape uh, at the center of the book. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but— um, Oh, it you involved... have to. Socket, you have to tell well, us the story of what happened. Well, uh, it, you know, it involved bribes for the guards in, uh, in, in the, you know, involving wild turkey whiskey, flavored cigars, and Rajan and I created an elaborate pretext, a fictitious Indian wedding, uh, to ferry the men out of the labor camp five at a time, under the noses of the guards, to put them on the path uh, of a freedom journey. The men um, escaped overnight from the labor camp, came back the next morning, threw their hard hats in protest uh, back at the company's gates, saying uh, that they were leaving the company. And then they set off on a march to Washington. What we didn't know then uh, was that there was uh, an agent deep in the government who was unraveling our plans. But, but we set off that heady morning um, uh, for Washington, thinking um, that justice was at hand. And take it from there. Can you tell us the journey that they took? Sure. Well, um, when the men escaped from the labor camp, 
Um, they filed a civil lawsuit against the company. Um, but the path to legal status for them was a Department of Justice human trafficking complaint. Human trafficking is a crime, and the men were alleging that this company and their recruiters had trafficked them from India um, to Mississippi and Texas uh, and held them in forced labor. Uh, the men were counting on the Department of Justice opening an investigation. We now had—I uh, personally now had the problem of hiding 500 brown men in Louisiana. So we, we hid out in a hotel in New Orleans that uh, had been um, ruined by Hurricane Katrina, flooded by Hurricane Katrina. Um, we hid for over a week, but there was radio silence from the DOJ. So we set out, like many people in social movements past, we decided to come out of hiding and come out as undocumented uh, to the government, and we proceeded on a march to Washington. Along the way, we met with civil rights figures who gave us strength. And um, although the men had it hard—I mean, we were walking uh, on the sides of roads through Alabama, Mississippi and Georgia, uh, passing cars were full of passengers who were jeering us, bottles were being pelted at the workers uh, from open windows and passing cars. But nonetheless, the men's spirits were high, because they believed that when they got to Washington, they would get justice. In their particular English, they actually called it the Department for Justice. Um, and, and they believed they would just get to Washington um, and, um, and they would get the status uh, that they deserved, the special humanitarian visas designated for trafficking victims. What we didn't know was that the fight would take three years, because deep inside the government, there was a federal agent, an immigration cop, with his own corrupt ties to the company and with his own secret motivations to unravel our plans. On our way to Washington, we uncovered surveillance, uh, and we uncovered uh, a, a whole federal dragnet that was working its own machinations to jail and deport these men even before they got to Washington. So, Saka, you have to stop there, because what are you talking about? There's someone in the Justice Department who has a tie to Signal Corporation? Not in the Justice Department, but at the federal immigration agency called Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, there's a, an ICE. immigration cop who lives—ICE, who lives in Mississippi, um, who has his own motivations um, for colluding with the company. So now that the workers are on their march and headed to Washington, he appoints himself as the investigator for the DOJ. When the Department of Justice launches an investigation, they bring in um, a, a law enforcement official to investigate. We've been waiting, at this point in the story, for ICE to bring in the FBI. We did get a call from the FBI, but after that, they were nowhere to be found. When the investigation actually did start, an ICE agent came forward to tell us he was in charge of the investigation. And again, I don't want to give a lot away, but this very ICE agent had his own ties to the company, had been working for, with the company for, for years and years, um, and now was in charge of the investigation. What he was doing, though, Amy, was—we'd uh, find out later—wasn't uh, investigating the workers. He was turning the investigation into 
uh, a weapon against the workers. He was trying to frame the men we were representing, the 500 Indian workers, as the criminals, um, and uh, working to jail and deport them. And so, this is not just a story of a corporation that is exploiting, that is, to say the least, um, not just terrorizing, but deeply abusing these workers. But it's a story of corporate government complicity. Talk more about what the government knew, what the government did and didn't know along the way. Well, you know, in the right at the middle of the story, uh, there's this smoking gun that, that we find. Um, it's the astonishing revelation uh, of a long-standing collusion uh, between Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE uh, police, uh, and the company. And, and it really gets at, Amy, what we see all the time. I've seen this for years and years in my uh, work as a labor organizer uh, after disasters and also across the South, which is that companies have at their behest um, cops who moonlight as private security, immigration agents uh, who work deeply with the company to keep workers feeling like they can't come forward and report abuse um, because they might be deported, they might be punished. In this story, um, when a few brave workers came forward to meet with me clandestinely, and after that, these brave workers demanded things from the company—not anything major. Their demands were hot tea in the morning because they'd get up in the morning in the cold and need to warm themselves to go to work. They demanded microwaves on site so that they could um, warm up their frozen rice. These were their collective demands. I mean, it is a sad day in 21st century America when workers have to press collective demands, not for union rights, respect and a contract, but for microwaves on site in their labor camp on company property uh, to uh, warm up their rice. Those were their demands. And for making those demands, uh, the, the company worked with uh, law enforcement agencies to punish the workers. And that was—the um, details of that revelation were ultimately uh, what blew all this up in Washington. And I, I tell that story in The Great Escape. And talk about what happened when the workers and you—I mean, we're talking about hundreds of workers who escaped from a Mississippi labor camp um, uh, there to clean up after Hurricane Katrina, and then they make their way to Washington. What happens there? Well, one of the things that happens is we're coming out of um, a civil rights uh, memorial on the way to Washington. And uh, we look up and we see a man surveilling us. We see a man recording us. Um, there's a chase scene that's uh, recounted in the book, up to the top of the building, around the block, and all the way to a parked—what uh, looks like a parked uh, construction van, uh, a contractor's van. I thought it was, uh, you know, some kind of self-appointed white vigilante operation, and flung open the doors of the van. Inside it, was the Alabama director of ICE conducting a surveillance operation. So, you know, uh, that was when it came to light that, that the ICE dragnet was surveilling us. As we got to Washington, um, we realized 
that the conspiracy between the government and uh, the company went deeper and deeper. It wasn't just one or two ICE agents, but a whole network um, of, uh, of uh, uh, law enforcement officials that surveilled us all over again uh, in Falls Church in Virginia, right as we were going into uh, Washington. So, you know, what, what we were very clear about coming into Washington was Washington wouldn't be easy. D.C. would be a fight. Um, when the campaign hit the rocks in D.C., um, my partner, Rajan, and I, uh, over an elaborate meal, uh, came up with the next escalation. Uh, Rajan cooked our—you know, we had become close friends. Every friendship has its rituals. We never solved problems uh, uh, over a whiteboard. We, we solved problems over extraordinary meals. And one night uh, that's recounted in the book, uh, Rajan cooked uh, an elaborate, mysterious uh, Bedouin dish called al-Kabza. It has uh, rice, meat, and 22 spices. And we came up with a plan over that meal for a hunger strike in Washington, D.C. And that was the next step. We, uh, we, I recount the story in the book about a long hunger strike over the course of which all of Washington is talking about these workers. But the ICE agent uh, blocking our plans holds steadfast. Um, so even in D.C., even with the world watching, even with the Department of Justice investigating, uh, the company uh, and its uh, allies in law enforcement were still strong enough to hold back um, our, our justice march uh, and, uh, you know, and keep the workers uh, undocumented and on a pathway to being deported. So, Sakatsoni, in this remarkable story that you tell, The Great Escape, um, you bring us back to 2005, Hurricane Katrina, the cleanup. But 2005 is a few years after the 9-11 attacks, 2001. Can you talk about what happened with ICE, with DHS, the anti-immigrant fervor in this country, um, and then what these guest worker programs are all about. Well, 9-11 was a, a very pivotal um, moment for America. It was a, a tragic event, but followed after that by multiple other tragedies. Um, one of the impacts of 9-11 uh, was that immigrants lost their foothold in normal American life. Um, immigrants like me, I came to the United States as a foreign student before 9-11. Um, I was actually uh, uh, in Chicago. I arrived from New Delhi to Chicago to study at the University of Chicago. Uh, I was getting a theater degree. My parents were probably the only parents in the history of Indian civilization uh, who said it was okay for their son to go to America to become a theater director. And that's what happened. That's what I was doing when I missed an immigration deadline. Um, that was before 9-11, so I, I just took it as um, a routine thing, something I could fix. Um, I didn't think it was more serious than an unreturned library book, and I had a lot of those. And then 9-11 happened, um, and I lost my foothold in America, like lots and lots of immigrants. Um, we were underground, working without papers, um, you know, uh, doing our best through a uh, a string of low-wage service sector jobs. 9-11 um, was also a pivotal moment uh, for immigration policy. Um, immigrant rights activists were really close 
to immigration reform uh, and a large-scale legalization before 9-11. Um, those plans uh, were gutted after 9-11 after because of the anti-immigrant backlash uh, that was not connected to uh, the perpetrators and motivations behind 9-11, but, but came from an opportunism in American politics uh, to uh, congeal uh, an anti-immigrant sentiment uh, in, in America, a sentiment that only grew after that. So 9-11 was a really, really, uh, really, really uh, great turning point. As you publish this book now, um, we're right on the end of the catastrophes in, uh, that California is experiencing. Your book, you know, takes place in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, uh, which many see as the dawn of the era of climate disasters. But can you talk about the connection between what happened then right through to now and what you're looking at with, to say the least, um, uh, the knowledge and organizing you have behind you? Absolutely. You know, what I didn't know then, Amy, was that these workers uh, who came from India um, were among the first workers um, that would be a rising workforce, workers who we now call the resilience workforce, uh, the workers who largely immigrant, uh, largely undocumented, mostly vulnerable, uh, the workers who rebuild after uh, climate disasters, the workers who continue to clean up uh, repair, heal, and rebuild after hurricanes, floods, and fires. Um, the workers who I represented after Hurricane Katrina, the workers who would, uh, you know, gather under the statue of Robert E. Lee in uh, New Orleans, or workers like the ones in this book who were in labor camps, were among the first resilience workers. Um, Katrina was supposed to have been a once-in-a-hundred-year flood. That's what it was called, uh, an event that would not happen for another hundred years. Well, since Katrina, um, as a result of climate change, disasters have become more frequent uh, and more destructive. There have been, since Katrina, over $200 billion disasters. And as disasters have grown, this workforce has grown. And these workers do all this without legal protections, without legal status. Uh, they often uh, have to fight to be paid, um, and, and if they fall off roofs, they're often left at the doorstep of hospitals uh, for dead. This is how we're doing recovery in America, um, and that's what we at Resilience Force uh, are trying to change. Saket Sony, director of Resilience Force, author of the new book, The Great Okay, there's Amy. Let's see if we can get. Confessions of West Virginia. is a uh,
Como México no hay dos. Como San Jalisco tampoco. Over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas, tacos, chilaquiles, birria to die for? How about your favorite American dishes? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Without a patter. Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Holy Patrick, Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. 
but every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free! For free! They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Come watch your favorite John Hughes 80s films through a whole new lens. We'll have the subtitles on and the volume low while a panel of feminists critique these beloved movies that shaped a generation with sexist, classist, homophobic, racist plots and characters and settings along with a healthy dose of damage property. Hosted by staunch feminist Pam Benjamin at Mutiny Radio, join us 2.15 for 16 Candles with Warren Kraut and Emma Brennan. 3-1, The Breakfast Club with Spencer Devine and Dominic Delgadillo. 3-15, Pretty in Pink with Nina G and Allison Reynolds. And 3-28, Some Kind of Wonderful with Mel Michelle. Hey, it's really exciting. We're going to be here. 278 121st Street screening John Hughes Films with you. 6 o'clock every other Wednesday, Mutiny Radio. Hey kids, it's your pal, Spider-Man. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino. I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck. And donate two to five dollars on. Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time. The year is 2023. Oh, I wish that laughter had value. And the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not, true entertainment has brought us a savior. In who's that live.com? Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to who's that live.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in a raffle, I guess. True, 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 true productions. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live <laughs> 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog-friendly. Dog-friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. Oh, 
a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party <laughs> at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 2781 21st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. I knew Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in the drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations on Eventbrite. Talking public schools. In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy. Laughter has value, and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Whoisthatlive.com. Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that... Who's that? Go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows. Join us on a journey into the absurd. 